Welcome truth seekers all across the fruited plain. I'm your host, Kim S. Anderson, bringing you civics made simple. Hashtag we are exceptional. These are bite-sized civics lessons designed for you to take and share wherever you go. These are important times. Times that American citizens like you and me need to know how our rights came to be and the responsibilities that go along with them. Welcome everyone. This is your host for Civics Made Simple. This is Kim S. Anderson. Really looking forward to our discussion today. Today, we are doing a case study on the election of 1824. And I think you will see why this is relevant for what we are experiencing in our current day and age. So let's get started. In the early elections, the hope of our founding fathers um, that George Washington would become the first president seems to be a logical first step and conclusion that after all that he had given, to the effort of establishing America that it was only fitting that he become the first president. And back then, the philosophy of who would become president was more about the office seeking the man versus the man, excuse me, seeking the office. And so funny enough, though, what ended up happening were those same leaders who had expressed so much disdain for the political party system, guess what? They soon found themselves aligning with others of like political interests, like you just couldn't help it. The result was the continuation of the Federalist Party. And those opposed to the political philosophy of the Federalists I guess you could consider those the Federalists, you know, were those who were more for a bigger centralized government versus those known as the Democratic Republican Party, ha ha ha, <clears throat> under the leadership of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And you could say that that particular political party, like the Democratic Republican Party, was more about individual rights <clears throat> and state rights not necessarily for a larger, more powerful, overarching federal government. And so, excuse me, so in 1788 and 1792, George Washington's leading opponent had been John Adams. Um, You know, he never really posed a threat to George Washington, like who really could. Um, But having received the second highest number of of votes, um, John Adams became vice president. And that's kind of how it was. And so in 1796, when Washington retired, John Adams won the election. Although at that time, he faced some com- some uh, competition from Thomas Jefferson, Adam Burr, um, and Thomas Pickney. And, but what ended up happening was that John Adams was a Federalist. And because Thomas Jefferson received the second highest number of votes, he became vice president. <clears throat> And Jefferson was, of course, a Democratic Republican. So they had the unusual situation of the two leaders coming from two different parties or two different realms of political thought. And so a more serious situation developed in 1800 um, when the intended presidential candidate was Thomas Jefferson 
and the vice presidential candidate was Aaron Burr. Now, at the time, the Constitution did not provide for any means to differentiate for whom the votes were intended. So all the votes were for president. Okay, there was no separation between president and vice president voting at that particular time. So what ended up happening was that the vote of the electors ended up being tied at 73-73. And so the House then voted. Can you imagine this? Just picture this. The House voted 35 times without being able to reach a decision. 35 times. And now here comes politics. Then Alexander Hamilton threw his support to Jefferson in exchange for some political favors. And on the 36th vote, a Delaware elector who apparently wanted some assurances from Hamilton decided not to vote um, or abstain from voting. And Jefferson then became the president. Now, Aaron Burr became the vice president. This and other factors in his relationship with Hamilton so angered Burr that he later challenged Hamilton to a duel. And in this famous story, Hamilton was killed in this duel. I mean, you know, they were taking it really, really seriously. So as a result of this problem in the election of 1800, Congress immediately proposed the 12th Amendment to the Constitution to change the Electoral College balloting procedure. The major provision was that voting for the president and the vice president would be two separate ballots. Now, you know, this was good in one respect, but really what ended up happening were all the good, really good candidates ended up running for president. And if they didn't make it, they were kind of out. Um, so you had a much lesser qualified candidate running for vice president. Does that make sense? So, but eventually and ultimately, as we know now, this provision was also changed. So here's what happened. <laughs> um, and so for the, the next 16 years, between 1808 to 1824, two presidents, James Madison and James Monroe, each won their elections with clear victories and served two terms. Both were Democratic Republicans. Now, by 1824, the Federalist Party had all but dissolved. And the Democrat Republican Party was also very divided. And at that point, what had been called the period of the era of good feelings, <laughs> as it is with politics, um, those good feelings were now gone. And personal and sectional interests and differences had now become the focus of politics. So coming into the election of 1824, John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, a Federalist president, was the representative from the Northeastern states. He was in favor of high protective tariffs and he, he was the favorite candidate. Now, a second candidate was Henry Clay, who was from Kentucky, and he held many of the same views as Adams. But, you know, he and Adams had no no time for each other, no time to come together to maybe, you know, join forces or that sort of thing. The third candidate was Andrew Jackson, and he was a senator from Tennessee, and he was a war hero, having gained some fame in the War of 1812. And in that war, he soundly defeated the British at New Orleans. Oh, how we love the British. Henry Clay tended to support Jackson. 
Although Jackson was a relative newcomer on the political scene, um, and at that time his political views weren't well known. Then there was a man named William Crawford, who was from Georgia. He was the fourth candidate on the ballot, had been born in Virginia, and wanted to carry on the line of presidents who had once called Virginia their home. Now, although he was strongly opposed to a strong central government, he was still the favorite of many in Congress. John C. Calhoun desired the presidency, but he instead backed out in favor of running for the vice presidency. And he was the easy winner of that election, receiving 182 of the electoral votes. So here's what happened. When the ballots were delivered to the president of the Senate and were opened and counted, it was apparent that Henry Clay had gotten enough votes to keep John Quincy Adams from getting a clear majority. As a result, Adams received 84 votes. Jackson received 99 votes. Crawford got 41 and Clay had 37. Now, the 12th Amendment adopted in 804 provided that if no candidate received a majority of the electoral votes, then the election was to be determined by the House of Representatives. The top three candidates were to be considered by the House. However, by this time, Crawford had contracted a, a serious illness and was not able to be considered. And Clay was so far behind in the electoral vote that he was not considered to be in the running at all. <laughs> so once again, here's what happened. Andrew Jackson certainly thought he had every right to believe that he would easily win in the House of Representatives because when they did the first vote, he had more than anybody else, right? And he had a clear margin of victory in the popular vote, 41.3% to John Quincy Adams, 30.9%. <laughs> However, it is important to remember that at that time, not all the states conducted a, a popular vote. Six states did not hold an election for the people. Their legislators selected the electors. And some t states did not have all four candidates on the ballot. As a matter of fact, some didn't even have three candidates. So it would have been difficult at the time to claim a majority of the popular vote. Okay, so let's just be clear. It's not modern time. This is, you know, a couple hundred years ago. So one of the of most significance, the candidate receiving the fewest votes, Henry Clay, once again, politics, also happened to be the Speaker of the House. <laughs> Um, so there was a lot of conjecture whether he would use his influence, um, as speaker to influence the vote. Now there's no air quote evidence that he did, but look what comes next. So John Quincy Adams was declared, John Quincy Adams was declared the next president of the United States on the very first ballot. While the supporters of Andrew Jackson were very angry at the decision <laughs> they were even more outraged a few days later when President John Quincy Adams appointed Henry Clay to the position of Secretary of State. Right, right, right. That's all I'm going to say about that. So there were, of course, cries of corruption from, from Jackson's supporters, and they were convinced that Jackson was the winner, and he should have been the winner. Um but four years later, that is exactly what happened when Jackson won the presidency over Adams. In that election in 1828, 
Jackson received 178 electoral votes and Adams received 83. And Jackson went on in 1832 to win a second term over Henry Clay by an astounding margin. Clay only had 49 electoral votes. And so you think Jackson might have learned how to play the game in those four years? Yeah, I think so. So the election of 1824 has been called uh, one of, it's been, it's been named a realigning election. Historians have coined this term to refer to the fact that significant changes resulted from the activities and outcome of this election. Um, at that point, the Federalist Party was was dead. It just really didn't even exist anymore. And the Democrat-Republican Party split into the Democratic Party and the National Republican Party. Still not the Republican Party that we know today, um, but maybe the Democratic Party is the Democrats we know today. That National Republican Party later became the Whig Party. And this proved to be the only election in which the newly elected president appeared to have lost both the popular vote and the electoral vote. I don't even know. Like, what really happened in 1824? Whew! And so, politics, the, the, the game of politics really started coming into a line in the presidential elections. Um, and they saw this again in 1836 when the new party of the called the Whigs attempted to gain the electoral majority by rather devious means. They ran three different candidates in three different regions of the country, and each candidate was very popular in the region in which he ran. Now, what the Whigs hoped to do was to, to basically corner the market. And so if I could speak in political terms like that, so that who so that their candidates would be put forth. But then once it came to the actual vote, they would um, come together and put one candidate forward, thinking that all the Whigs would then vote for that particular candidate and they would get their person in office. However. However, their scheme was defeated when the Republican candidate, Martin Van Buren, won a majority of the electoral votes. So, it, you know, they were scheming and trying to do things, and it's like it all backfired on them because everybody could see what they were doing. And in 1872, the Democratic candidate for, for president, journalist Horace Greeley, died between the general election and the meeting of the Electoral College. And at that time, no provisions had been made for such a situation. But what happened was his electors split their votes among the other Democratic candidates. And here again, the Republican candidate Ulysses S. Grant won a clear majority of the electoral votes. So the complications of the problem were not as great as they might have been. In the election of 1876, the country found itself in a time of economic depression and serious turmoil as a result of the construct of reconstruction following the Civil War. A Democrat, Samuel Tilden and Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, along with another other third party candidates, were in a tight race for the presidency. The potential for chaos was great and it became apparent that there would be disputed electoral votes coming from the southern states. Yeah, see, like, nothing really changes. Do you see how it's like nothing is new under the sun? So Congress had to do a special commission to determine the validity of the electoral ballots from the states of Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. I mean, it's like nothing changes. (laughs) Maybe the states change, but the issues don't change. 
And so one result, so in each case, one by one, they decided in favor of the ballots for Hayes, even though it appeared that Tilden had won the popular vote. One result from this election was that in 1887, Congress enacted a law that remains in effect today. This law provides that the states are responsible to determine the legality of its electoral vote and that only a majority of the vote of both houses of Congress can reject any electoral votes. My, my, my. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So next time, guys, that's going to wrap it up for us today on that interesting case study of the election of 1824 and some others that were thrown in there just to give us hope that America will survive um, <laughs> this current turmoil because we've survived it in the past. Next, we're going to be talking about the federal bureaucracy, and that is going to be really, really interesting. We're going to delve into the different departments that make up the um that make up the executive branch. And that's going to be fun, right? And then from there, we get to dive into the legislative branch. And boy, oh boy, is it going to be fun to see how it was supposed to be and compare and contrast to how it is today. So get ready for that. All right, guys, it has been my pleasure. Kim Anderson here with Civics Made Simple. I am so honored that we get to do this and, and share this information with you. Thank you guys for following the podcast. And we're only going to get bigger and better from here. God bless. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Civics Made Simple. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson, inviting you to visit our site, kimsanderson.me.me for the latest and most up-to-date information on our podcast and our store. Follow us at hashtag WeAreExceptional on Instagram and Twitter. God bless, and we'll see you next time.